You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. tweeting already what are you tweeting already no i'm not tweeting already i'm just uh you know to all my critics who don't believe that people will come to these things i want to have proof <laughs> i want to have proof well i want to start by, by thanking martin by the way very much for that warm introduction and uh my name is Nadine O'Regan, and it is a delight and a privilege to uh, be in a position this evening at the festival of interviewing the man beside me, Brett Easton Ellis. Um, like many of you, I suspect, I first came across his writing when I was in college in UCC. Uh, I picked up a copy of American Psycho. I gave it to my housemate as a present, and she never really f- kind of forgave me for it. Like, I think she thought it was like some sort of jibe at her, or like, you know, like that, that I was trying to, like, yeah, it was really awkward after that. And, you know, yeah, it was a birthday present. It was odd. But the point being, <laughs> um, from that moment, back in, uh, I'd love to say it was more recent than that, but back in the late 1990s up to now, I have been reading Brett Easton Alice. I am still reading Brett Easton Alice. Of course, as we all know, Brett is uh, and can fairly be described as one of the most controversial writers of our generation. Um, his third novel, the aforementioned American Psycho, uh, was originally dropped uh, by his first publisher before as we know, being taken up and published to subsequent acclaim, as well as a program, um, of course, for its very violent uh, scenes. Uh, Many of his other books, including Less Than Zero, depict the lives of a shallow, privileged, narcissistic elite, all accusations that, let's be real here, have occasionally been levelled at the author himself. Um, (laughs) That's true. Also a podcaster, a screenwriter, and a journalist. Uh, Ellis' latest book, White, is attracting huge attention. It's published on these shores on May 3rd, I believe. And in that book, which is both a kind of a memoir, but also a collection of essays, Ellis trains his gaze not only on his own life and uh, events such as his upbringing and the publication of early novels, including American Psycho, but he also trains his gaze on modern culture. And he asks us, you know, what we have become, what are we like, how are we living now? And he also brings in political topics, uh, some of which have, again, drawn considerable uh, press attention from publications, including the New York Times and many more. Uh, But before we get to talking about that, and we will be talking about all those topics, Brett, first, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's amazing. I love being back in Ireland. And it's been a long time. Before I ask you even one question, right? Just one more piece of housekeeping that we have to do. Yes. We will be taking questions from the audience later on, and to do that, I required a, a watch, but there wasn't one, so <laughs> I'm a bit like Flavor Flav. Just <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> but it's fine with me. It's but okay. to start, I mean, ordinarily, if I'm interviewing someone, I would ask them about their older work first because. Mm-hmm. Generally, that's the work that the audience would know and love. But in your case, White, the new book, has (coughs) become such a 
a controversial subject that Crazy. it feels almost remiss not to get straight into it. I guess so. So why did you decide to write this book and what did you consider it to be about? Well, first of all, I don't think there's anything in it that's particularly controversial, so I was completely wrong about that. And it is, it's become, oddly enough, the most controversial book I've written since American Psycho. And I guess because in a couple of chapters I touch upon the coverage of politics. Not politics exactly, not policy, but the coverage of politics and how people react to politics. And that has gotten me into, I guess, a lot of trouble. Um, but what happened was my agent uh, said, you, you should publish a book. It's been a long time. Why don't you publish something? And I said, well, I'm, I want to make these movies and I have these TV series that I'm working on and I want to like, get into that field. And she said, um, no, try to, let's get a book going. Let's get a collection of your essays. And I thought, well, I guess I've written or published a lot of essays starting in 1985. And I started to look through them all uh, to please my agent, who's a very demanding woman, and I'm very intimidated by her. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. I did not like any of the essays. I didn't think they were worthy to be put into a collection. I looked at essays I wrote for Rolling Stone, for Vanity Fair. They all just seemed very much in that moment. And the 21 or 22-year-old me writing about the Reagan 80s in Rolling Stone just didn't seem good anymore. So I told this to my agent, and my agent said, well, what about your podcast? You go on these rants. You do these um, monologues before you have your guests on. Uh, why don't you look at those and see if those are a book? And I still thought, oh, I'm not so sure. They're written to be spoken, and when I record them, they're a mess. There are notes all over the place. My producer stops me at times, and then I suddenly add in something else that I decide to write. So it's not really an essay. But I was out to dinner with a friend who liked the podcast, and when I told him that I was having this problem, said, oh, no, 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 that's a great idea, because there's a lot of themes that you hit over and over in your podcast, like ideology versus aesthetics, what's happening with that, the cult of likability, acting, what it means to be an actor right now in the culture. And so working with him, we kind of found what we thought were the most interesting podcasts. And really, White is kind of a free-form essay. It is not like, uh, it doesn't resemble anything like the classical essayist that I happen to like. It's a kind of notes on thing, and it hops all over the place. Uh, for about 270 pages, and it's like an it's like an essay done in about eight sections, and um, that's what happened, and that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. That's how it turned out. Why turn away from fiction? I was very unsure of using the novel anymore as a means of communication, mm -hmm. and. And that's just me. I don't think that's true for other people, but for me, I'd written uh, six or seven books, and that's a lot. For me, I thought, that's a lot of books. And I wanted to get into film, and I wanted to get into uh, TV. And so I felt I said everything I could say within the medium of the novel, of fiction. And, um, and I also didn't see the novel being at the center 
of the cultural conversation in a way that it was when I was in my 20s and in my 30s and even a little bit into my 40s. Even though books sell and people read, and yes, millennials read, I found out, um, it still doesn't seem to be there in the conversation in the way that I once relished it. And I, I, I'm not sure if that's a reason as to why my interest in the novel drifted away, but I can certainly say putting together white uh, reignited that interest in fiction, and I think I might be starting a novel quite soon. Really? A fast novel. Okay. Not one of these belabored eight-year-in-the-making kind of, you know, things that I used to do, but like uh, something more uh, connected to now. Okay. Is the voice that you have in White, and to an extent the voice that you have in, say, a novel like Lunar Park, is it, you know, which is also kind of a quasi-memoir, is that you, though? You know, is it totally Brett Easton Ellis, or did you ham it up occasionally? Um, the question is about the voice in white. Hmm. And it's interesting. I wrote these, a lot of this stuff in white for my podcast uh, to be spoken, to be read. And on my podcast, it's a different story. It's like you're listening to me, and it's a much more uh, naturalistic uh, enterprise in a way. Every time that you put it down on paper, it became a more literary exercise. And I noticed that the voice in white was me, definitely, but it was also not me because it was um, heightened by a literary quality that's not in the podcast necessarily. So yeah, some people have said, I think uh, the woman who uh, wrote about me in the Sunday Times, Decade, said it, she called it a very unpleasant voice, a very cold and unpleasant voice, which I thought was so weird because I think the voice is kind of warm and chill and kind of fun to read and I don't know what she was talking about. Um, but I tried to make white, one of the things that I wanted to do with white was to make it as readable as possible and to not do necessarily a super deep dive into all of this, but to have it uh, have a breezy conversational style, something you could read on an airplane from a you know, cross-Atlantic flight or something and kind of get exactly where I am in this moment. Mm. That was what I felt was required of me. Well, you also, notably, the name of the book being white. I mean, it was originally meant to be, what, privileged white male? And you had a bit white of an argument. White privileged male. You had an argument with your publisher about that. I did. Are you, do you regret that you didn't keep that original title? And called it white instead? Oh, yes. No, and called it privileged white male. Well, no, the problem with white privileged male, which was the working title that my editor and I were fooling around with when we were passing files back and forth while we were editing it, was for him seemed too jokey, mm -hmm. too wink-wink, and wasn't serious enough. I liked white privileged male. Um, I thought it was a pretty cool title, and it, it, was, uh, it, it was a correct title because this is vantage point of a white privileged male, whether you're interested in that or whether you're not, and kind of this vanishing species in a way. Um, but ultimately, people, a couple people, close friends told me the privileged male is kind of a turnoff and it, it minimizes the book and it minimizes your argument. And there's something about white, which was always an homage to my favorite essayist, Joan Didion, who I'm not sure is that well known on these shores, but she's always been my favorite nonfiction writer since I was in high school. 
And she wrote my favorite collection of essays called The White Album, which is about Los Angeles at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. And if I was going to do a book of essays, I was going to pay homage to her. And so I always want to white somewhere in the title. This book isn't about race. It's not about alt-right stuff or like, you know, white supremacy. It was supposed to be a title that was ultimately about neutrality and chillness and looking at the blankness of something and finding a kind of zen quality to that rather than getting so enraged, so excited by the world. There's a moment in the book where you talk about growing up in the 70s and you describe how the 70s was a moment when pessimism was a national language, a badge of hipness and cool. Everything was a scam and everybody was corrupt. One could argue that it fucked us all up or, from another angle, that it made us stronger. Looking back, it probably made each of us less of a wuss. Now, I don't know. Is this that leads true? on nicely to what and you've termed generation wuss. Uh, I know, I know. Generation wuss. Uh, harsh or just funny? I don't know. I think it's just kind of funny. <laughs> I don't, I, I, Generation Wuss is not supposed to be taken so seriously. It's not, it doesn't sound like a sweeping indictment. It sounds kind of like funny, like Snowflake or something. It doesn't sound like such a, and I live with a member of Generation Wuss, so it and was always, and he was amused by it too. So I never thought it would, I never thought it would kind of catch on. And I never thought that millennials would be so triggered by it, which they really are. And I never, and I never thought during this phase of my life, and especially with the publication of this book, mm. that I was able to trigger so many millennials, oceans of them, all over the place, triggered constantly by my comments and interviews, by my tweets. I mean, it's, it's kind of delicious. I mean, it's kind of like, as I said, it's like eating frosting in a way. It's like, just like, I can't believe how easy it is to trigger a millennial. And seeing all of these reviews by millennials who go on for 3,000 words about how old and white and irrelevant I am and how, how can Brady Sinello still be published, he's such a loser, he's such a racist, such a sexist, he's completely irrelevant, and then they spend 3,000 words talking about this, which is kind of exhibit A of, in the last chapter of White, which is talking about the over-hysteric reaction to certain things that don't necessarily deserve that kind of reaction. Do you subscribe to, I think it was the Oscar Wilde view, that you don't read your reviews, you measure them? No, I read them. <laughs> I read them, I read all my reviews. I read, and I get, and I have always, ever since I was 21, I've always gotten a lot of bad reviews. People s tend to think that Less Than Zero is like a really well-reviewed book. It wasn't. It had 50% uh, kind of okay, intriguing reviews. And then the other half was, how can Simon and Schuster publish the journals of this drug addict? How can, what has publishing come to? This book is terrible. The meanderings of some drug-addled teenager in LA. And it was at that moment where I finally realized, uh, well, not finally, but realized that reviews were never going to be necessarily my friend and that reviews didn't really affect me in that way. Well, actually, speaking of that, you've very kindly agreed to read from the new book, and there's a segment here Very which, briefly. Uh, <laughs> we, made, we made a pact in the green room, a paragraph here and a paragraph there. We're not going to be reading this for about a minute. So this is uh, from 
the, uh, the moment when you describe what it feels like to have been reviewed and rated from a very young age? I've been rated and reviewed since I became a published author at the age of 21, and I've grown entirely comfortable in being both liked and disliked, adored and despised. This environment feels natural to me, and I've never placed much importance on the opinions that shoot in either pro or con. The critical reputation that emerged was based on how many reviewers liked or didn't like my books, or what they thought I represented. This is how it works, and that's cool, I guess. I was the rare author who was praised as often as he was disparaged. Unlike my peers, I wasn't politely ignored if a critic didn't like my books. He or she went after me full throttle. And I doubt any other writer of my generation received worse reviews than I did, and that's not bragging or complaining, it's just the truth. But being reviewed negatively never changed the way I wrote or the topics I wanted to explore, no matter how offended some readers were by my descriptions of violence and sex. As a Gen Xer, rejecting, or more likely ignoring the status quo came easily to me. One of my generation's loudest anthems was Joan Jett's Bad Reputation, whose chorus rang out, I don't give a damn about my reputation. I've never been afraid of any deviation. And my own reputation became a target of groupthink when my conglomerate-owned publishing house decided it didn't like the contents of a particular novel I'd been given a contract to write for them, and subsequently refused to publish it on the grounds of taste. They were offended by it. This is a story I'll return to later, but it was a scary moment for the arts. If one that has come to seem normal, in effect, a corporation was deciding what should or shouldn't be permitted, what should or shouldn't be read, what you could say and what you weren't allowed to say. The difference between then, 1990, and now is that there were loud arguments and protests about this on both sides of the divide. People had differing, people had differing opinions, yet debated them rationally, driven by passion and logic. The embrace of corporate censorship wasn't quite as acceptable in those days. You couldn't, argue <clears throat> you couldn't argue that a certain HBO show shouldn't be written on the grounds of its presumed, though unproven, racism. There was no such thing yet as thought crime, now an everyday accusation. People also listened to one another, and I recall that as a time when you could be fiercely opinionated and openly questioning without being considered a troll and a hater who should get banned from the civilized world if your conclusion turned out to be different. Thank you. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> Um, it strikes me reading the book that, exactly as you've said, uh, you got used to public censor from a very young age, but actually you, you, you also talk in the book how at the age of 23 you were suffering from anxiety at points um, when your novels were being published, and you just have these throwaway moments where you talk about how you would take another tiny line, another shot of vodka, one more cigarette. Um, oh, so those were the days. Do you... <laughs> But do you, do you connect well <laughs> to that young man that you were? Like, are you potentially at risk of potentially vilifying millennials purely because you don't remember what it felt like to, to be back there? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Look, we were not addicted to our screens. We didn't have 30 kind of allergies. We weren't carrying our security badger to, on planes. We weren't like freaking out over everything. We weren't triggered by everything. So 
No, no. It was you got to uh, put Generation X and Millennials far, far away from each other. They are very, very different groups. I guess you're talking about basically. But you, so you what still fundamentally think Generation X is better. Better? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Better. And I know I have just triggered 4,000 millennials who are going to be on my Twitter feed freaking out about this. Better. Why? Better? I don't know. I mean, better? That's just a weird word. I don't know. I certainly think that we were uh, calmer, more chill. And again, I understand all the things that make a millennial crazy and upset about stuff, and I get it. I live with one, first of all. I've lived with one for 10 years, so I am sympathetic, and I do understand their neuroses and psychoses. I do get it. But it does annoy me. It still can annoy me, and I can still write about it in a way from the vantage point of a Gen Xer and go, this is fucking ridiculous, you know? I mean, <laughs> this is crazy. But Okay, so just to talk... Why can't I? Specifically for a moment. It's my I, opinion. <laughs> but I want to bring it back to, I suppose, the books. But before I do, you have mentioned your boyfriend a couple of times. And Todd is 32. Um, he's clearly a millennial. And sometimes I wonder about how he feels about being used as the center plank in your argument to say that everything's okay because you have a boyfriend who's a millennial. He's somewhat flattered by the attention. <laughs> uh, he kind of likes it. And, um, and I wouldn't be doing it if he was upset by it. So that's one thing. And I do, there was something though that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. There was this terrible New Yorker article that I got punked by and I got trapped into. And at one point, uh, I guess it, it had been posted on the East Coast that morning. Uh, so it was about 8.30 in LA when it, when it, appeared in our feed, and Todd tugged on my t-shirt, and I was still asleep, and he whispered those dreaded words, you're trending. <laughs> you are trending. And I've trended before, and it's pretty bad. I mean, it's not, it's not anything good, usually. And so I saw I was trending 100,000 times in the, in the U.S. because of this New Yorker piece. And he got upset. He knows me well enough. He knows that that piece was kind of a prank and not representative of me in the book. And whatever, I, I own the piece, I did it, it was stupid, whatever. But then he tried to defend me on Twitter, and then they went after him. And they located old tweets. Oh, the favorite pastime of locating old tweets. And one of them was, orange juice is orange. That was a tweet of Todd's from like 2012. And then there became this mob going, what a fucking moron. This is, this is who Brad Easton Ellis is fucking living with. And then that got retweeted like a thousand times. And then they found old videos he made. He's a musician. So he made some somewhat lame videos in 2010 where he's walking down the street playing the guitar, singing his songs, you know. And then someone found one of those and they posted it and said, who in the fuck is Ellis dating? Who is this person? And he got, he had never been trolled by the mob before. I have before on Twitter, so I know you don't engage and you don't say anything and it ultimately goes away. But um, that, uh, that kind of hurt him. Yeah. Kind of made it hard to be my boyfriend. But you're good. Yeah, we're good. You mentioned the New Yorker piece and 
I think you have been very honest in saying, look, for them it was a bit of a slam dunk. They went after you on some of your political views as expressed in the new book, uh, your feelings about Trump in particular. Lack of political views, lack of feelings yeah, about Trump. You didn't vote, you've never voted. In the majority of Americans. I'm in the overwhelming majority of Americans who didn't vote. Most Americans do not vote and I don't understand why that's so shocking. Why should you vote for a candidate you don't believe in? And I don't understand this tut, 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 tut thing. I was supposed to vote for Trump or Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry, it's just not acceptable to me. And I wasn't going to place a vote or anybody in the Green Party. Certainly that wasn't gonna happen. And the overwhelming majority of Americans do not vote. That's how they cast their vote or they're not interested. So I don't understand why there's this wagging finger thing about not voting compared to voting in uh, an absurd election. But do you not agree that it is very dangerous for a writer to, to write from a position of self-confessed apathy, political no. apathy? No, I don't at all. I think it's interesting. Not enough writers do that. And I think it's a very interesting thing for Gen X to do too. I think that's one of the uh, defining um, things about our generation, that there is a kind of cool laid back apathy. And I don't attach a certain morality to that. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's a immoral or moral thing. And I do think that there is a large part of the culture, uh, virtue signaling or whoever, who is shocked by that, but I don't think they should be shocked by that. Why should they not be shocked? Uh, because I don't think they should be shocked. <laughs> but That's a Gen X answer. <laughs> because they shouldn't, who cares? Well, see, that's, I think, one of the troubles that people have with the book. It is. It's certainly one of the troubles people that have with the book. Essentially, at one level, you're saying you're writing this book about people like Trump, about people that other people care very deeply about, and you're putting forward your opinions. And then at the very end, you have a tendency to have a sentence here or there where you'll say, but who cares? This is just performance art. Twitter is performance art. This book is performance art. Can you have it both ways? Yes, you can. What you I can. I think that's interesting. You can have it both ways. What I would say to you is that since the book has been published with all the attendant publicity that your comments have been given, it's interesting to note that the book has shot up the charts. Um, it has. That, the day that New Yorker piece appeared, it shot up to number one in Amazon in like six categories. So I don't know what the writer was intending that because he hated the book so much and he hated me so much, but you know, it's like, um, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, thanks. So have you, or do you feel ashamed or like you're oh, winning? so ashamed. <laughs> or I'm both. so ashamed. But I, come I can on, barely let's get be on real. stage tonight to face all you guys. I'm so filled with shame. Let's be real, let's be real. Somebody attempts to shame you the odd time at work. I'm too old. I'm not shamed. I, I, look, I've been shamed my whole career, basically. People have shamed me my whole career. I've always gotten bad reviews. I've never gotten prizes. I'm still, for some reason, this object of scorn as a, some kind of provocateur. No, shame is not in my lexicon. I do not feel shamed about something I've written, and I certainly don't feel shame about someone's lame reaction to something I've written. Mm -hmm. I am not shamed by... Uh, reviews and I, I just don't shame I, I don't know that's that's a very millennial quality I think but to be honest is it or not yeah, I don't know but, but the reason I'm I asking the question is because like you 
you know, you're a public person, but you're also a private person. And sometimes you might go for a night out, look at your phone, see somebody has said something particularly spiteful or nasty. And I think a lot of people have experienced this, where no matter how much you stand by your own argument or your own book and its value, um, you can still have a moment where somebody gets to you. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I was talking about this with my editor. Uh, this book, for some reason, and I think many of you who are fans of mine and read this book will wonder, scratch your head going, why is this so controversial right now? You might locate why, but my editor, who I've had since American Psycho, a man named Gary Fiskajohn at Random House, we were talking about this. There were a spate of hysterical reviews, one actually titled, What in the Fuck is Brett Easton Ellis Talking About? <laughs> That was the title of the review of the Daily Beast. And this was followed by that hysterical 3,000-word review uh, about how irrelevant I am and why should anybody be writing about me. And uh, his wife was quite upset by these reviews, and Todd was quite upset by these reviews. But Gary and I went through something very special in 1990 and 1991, and that was the cancellation of American Psycho and dealing with a, a concerted effort by corporations, whether it was Paramount, Gulf and Western, the New York Times, the National Organization of Women, trying to cancel a book. And there was also hundreds of death threats. This is okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, millennials getting pissed on you on Twitter is like, you know, is nothing compared to what it was like then. So I feel I've already been through this you know, trial by fire, and I certainly, certainly do not feel shame. Let's talk about some other writers. You mentioned quite a few people in the book who you admire. Uh, Paul Murray, Skippy Dyes is mentioned in there. And My also you books. quote uh, James Joyce. You say, uh, he says it's very difficult to write without offending people, which uh, certainly has been the case for you. And uh, Saoirse Ronan, actually, as an actor, you've loved her in Brooklyn. Yes. And I believe you are currently reading Sally Rooney's uh, I am. first novel. Uh, I am. Conversations with Friends. So how are you getting on with it? Just started? Have I what? Have you started it? No, I haven't started yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have, have it with you. It's you in my little you. bag, but I haven't started it yet. Um, you, it's in my hotel room. You, you talk about, actually, with American Psycho, that the book essentially was what it, was, what it means to be a person in a society you disagreed with, and what happened when you attempted to accept and live with its values, even if you knew they were wrong. And I think that line is, is very important in White, because I think it maybe it suggests one of the reasons why American Psycho has continued to have such power over people uh, years and years on since its original publication. And of course, then with the film uh, back in what, 2001 with Christian Bale, like it is a novel that has just acquired significance as the years have gone on. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, like I've met you one or, once or twice before and people have said to me, oh my God, you're interviewing Brett Easton Ellis, I'd be scared. Yeah. Like, because they associate you with Patrick Bateman. I, I mean, do. do you get that? I guess I do. I don't know what to do about that. Um, uh, one's fiction, uh, you know, it's so strange. It's sort of like being afraid to meet, uh, like people who make extreme art. Uh, I've always noticed are some of the nicest people I've met. David Lynch, lovely man, goes way out there. David Cronenberg, another lovely man. I don't know, I can't really equate what the artist puts up there being necessarily what the artist is about literally, 
I think there's a lot of themes that run through my books that, I'm, that are very personal to me, and that's why I write the books. But in terms of the extremity of the books, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's something I'm interested in doing as an artist, but I don't know necessarily if that wholly defines me. That if you just look at American Psycho and the 10 pages of Carnage in it, and you only think that that is what I represent and not the other 390 pages of social satire and humor and all of that stuff, then I don't know. That must be a very hard way to live. Mm. Very hard way to live True. to be scared True. like that. And I think it's still a hard way to live for a lot of people who are very scared by a lot of things right now. What did you make of the film? I liked it. I actually, I was at the premiere and Donald Trump was at the premiere. Donald Trump posed with Christian Bale at the premiere in 2000, April 2000 at the Lowe's on the Upper West Side. Uh, and um, you know what? First of all, I have to say that uh, I knew Mary Heron for many, many years before she decided to make that movie. And uh, we were friendly. And she completely understood the book. She really liked the book. She got it in a way that a lot of directors who had been attached quite hadn't. Oliver Stone had been attached. David Cronenberg had been attached. Um, and, uh, and I, but I do think at times that she's given too much credit for revealing to an audience what the book is really about because everything in the movie is from the book. And it really is the only way. What she, her adaptation was the only way to do it. I'd written three drafts that were pretty much, uh, except for one or two flourishes, pretty much that final script. And I, and I did go to the Writers Guild to arbitrate it, to get credit for it. And the way the Writers Guild worked, I didn't get credit on it. But it was pretty much, those are the scenes that you take to turn into a movie. There's really not a lot else you can take from that. Those were the kind of the 100 minutes of scenes that you can turn into a movie. And she did a good job. And Christian Bale did a fantastic job. And, uh, I, and I, I'd be lying to you if I said that that movie did not help give the book a second life. Certainly did. did, yeah. Um, you've always loved screenwriting, and there are so many interesting vignettes in the new book where you talk about projects that you didn't get off the ground with, say, Kanye, and there, there are a lot of people that were sort of nearly, nearly there with you on a film project. So, to some extent, like your career, the way I would see it, through the novels and the journalism, the podcasts, has already been so comprehensive and, and so massive. But there's a whole shadow career from Brett Easton Ellis. There are screenplays in the drawer. I mean, does that frustrate you that we haven't seen a lot of your work? No one held a gun up to my head. No one forced me to do that. I have spent about 10 years, maybe even longer, trying to get TV series that I'm very, I, I, I'm very passionate about mm. getting made. These aren't like, this is like a network hiring me to do something. This is like selling a show to a committed network who wants to make the show and then ultimately doesn't work out. Um, and I have been chasing that for uh, a long time. And it is, it depends on what your pain threshold is. How long can you stay in the casino? How long can you stay in the casino before you just give up the ghost and you just have to get out of there? I'm not quite there yet. I'm trying to get a couple of movies made that I want to direct. And um, certainly there's this Lunar Park uh, miniseries that I'm heavily involved with that it just takes a lot of time to get these things going. And for some reason, and, I, and a couple movies have been made, um, and uh, some well, some not well. Um, but uh, that is what I have been doing. And it is true, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages 
of writing that I've done that no one has seen. It's screenwriting, but it's still, it's, you know, what I've, uh, what I've been doing. I don't know. I mean, it's, that is, that's maybe a sad fact. What was it like to work with Kanye? To clarify, Kanye West called me up out of the blue in 2013 and wanted me to write a movie for him. And I didn't want to do it. And I met with him. Uh, yet I met with him. I met with him. I was really intrigued. And we met for about four hours. And this was right after Kim had given birth to, I believe, North, the first child. And we were in a wing at Cedar sinai and just Kanye and I talking about all of this stuff. He was fascinating. I have to say this, one-on-one -on -one with Kanye, he was absolutely fascinating. I wasn't quite uh, convinced yet to get on board with him to write this movie for him that he would be producing. Someone else would be directing it. Uh, it, was a it was kind of a lavish sci-fi movie. Uh, with, uh, and he was very obsessed with llamas at that period, llamas. <laughs> he wanted a lot of llamas in it. And I remember one of the money people asking him, Kanye, I mean, how about just two llamas? And he said, I'm not making this movie if there's not a lot of llamas in it. <laughs> Kanye at his most obsessed and kind of intriguing. Um, and so um, I got involved with that project and it, didn't, it ultimately didn't go anywhere. And then there was another project and another project. He did some stuff on the canyons. He did a couple of cool trailers for the canyons. I did a thing for Yeezus, uh, which I thought was a masterpiece record. And actually, after I left that hospital that day, he had given me an advanced copy of it, and I listened to it, and that was what convinced me that I wanted to work with Kanye. Uh, and so we've, we've uh, worked on a lot of projects, some TV projects, uh, some video projects that really haven't come together. Mm. Some of what you have wanted to work on has been quite surprising. Like, you did want to write the Fifty Shades of Grey screenplay. I did. I did want to write Fifty Shades of Grey. I lobbied hard for it. I annoyed the hell out of Yale James, who was so frustrated by how this was gaining momentum on Twitter that she <laughs> did tell the producers, just take a fucking meeting with them to get him out of this conversation. It's getting out of control. And I was doing, like, every night I was saying, who should star in my version of Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> give me, give me a list. And all, hundreds of people would say, I want this person to play Christian, and this person should play Anastasia. And then I would interact with them, and it was... And, and then, like, People Magazine would pick this up, and the press was picking this up, and it was driving Neil James crazy. And actually, the producers, uh, Dana Brunetti and Michael DeLuca, did meet with me on the Sony lot about this. And, um, and I did pitch my idea for how to, how to do it, and it was ultimately seeing the movies, I totally get it. I was wanted to do a realistic drama using these two characters, making them more Americanized, and actually telling a story about this relationship through various sexual experiences and where that ended up, and just really taking the book and playing it realistically. Stupid. That was a bad idea, and I... I thought it was a really good idea, but um, no, of course you do the fantasy, and of course you film the book exactly, and of course E.L. James wanted the book to be filmed exactly as mm -hmm. it was, and had, um, you know, the whole separate. Yeah, but I, I did want to do that. Mm -hmm. Perhaps a waste of time. I don't know. So, did you watch all the films, or have you seen I watched all three of the films. I watched yeah. two and a half. I walked out of the third one. Okay. I believe I walked out of the third one. But that's still a lot of, that's committed. <laughs> That's a lot of commitment to sit through those 
three movies. But I love Jamie Dornan. Yeah, so yeah. I have a big Jamie Dornan thing. And I was, um, so I could kind of watch him in anything except uh, part three. I just, I was done, like dripping the ice cream on their naked bodies I didn't in the get kitchen. To it myself, but, yeah. <laughs> no, it just, it lost. But you know, but again, the third book was the weakest. Mm. In the third book, the third installment was the weakest. <laughs> hard to know where to go with that but um but i mean one of the things actually about the new book as well is is your love of film comes through so strongly um and again sometimes there's controversial aspects to that but often like what i get from the book is just this pureness of like whether it's i don't know the like you describing what richard Gere looked like as a young man on screen or up to the present when you're d describing your involvement in various projects it's so obvious that film has meant so much to you so like who are you kind of enjoying and loving at the moment it's strange. Um, well, you know, in terms of movies that I've loved recently, I like spectacle and I like genre. I don't like message movies. I don't like ideological movies. I really believe in pure aesthetics. Uh, and I like something like uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. For me, that's like the perfect sweet spot of massive spectacle with a very personal story at the center of it. I think Paul Thomas Anderson does that too in Phantom Thread, where it really is a movie first about... Uh, kind of people on the fringes that you wouldn't necessarily think would be the main characters in the movie, and then the movie kind of becomes an extension of them, whether it's The Maid in Roma, whether it's uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread. I really like Call Me By Your Name, for example, because it was one of the first gay movies that, to me, didn't have any ideology attached to it. It wasn't a victim movie. It wasn't about suffering. It wasn't about AIDS. It wasn't about the closet. It was really, for me, it was like Brokeback Mountain, which was ends in suicide and murder and shame and whatever. And, and uh, it was a movie that was just a widescreen love story, kind of drenched in mood and atmosphere that just happened to be about two dudes. And I thought that was remarkably progressive and uh, cool. So I'm, and also had enough visual spectacle for me to respond to. And with regard then to like some of the projects you've worked on, whether it's been film or as we were mentioning with Kanye, I mean, one of the things that's, that's I've always loved about your books is it's so obvious that you love music as well. Uh, American Psycho has these really weird moments where you find yourself contemplating the career of Huey Lewis and like... I don't like any of those bands though. That was, <laughs> everyone that says like, oh my God, it was so hard writing American Psycho, all those, you had to like cut Still off the girl's times. head and you had to like do all these terrible things to people. And I was no, listen to Genesis for a month. That... <laughs> That is, that can be horrific. I mean, writing about and murdering a couple prostitutes, easy. But listening to every Genesis album and taking notes, and my God, Huey, uh, Whitney Houston was just like, I really felt that I, um, I uh, paid my dues doing that. <laughs> just for a reader to be amused. A month, a month of like going back every afternoon to Genesis records. I mean, Hugh Padgham produced uh, whatever in a very airless way. Oh, I don't know. I can't even... Something in the air? Something in the air, yes. And even Phil Collins... Uh, well, that's one of... Isn't that one of Phil Collins' solo projects? Mm. Because I not only had to do Genesis, I had to do Phil Collins' solo projects, too. So, if you and Todd are hanging out on a Sunday morning, like, what's on, what's on in the, the background? Have you got a Spotify? Are you... Um, you know, I... Look... <laughs> This is, this is going to be very revealing. I, I like CDs. 
I listen to stuff on Spotify, but I've got this collecting mania and I have to have CDs. So I will purchase CDs and I have a CD player in my car and I listen to a lot of music that way. You were originally potentially thinking about being a musician, weren't you? I was. I was in bands in high school and I was in bands in college and I thought, and I was a songwriter and I wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs and I thought that was going to be the ticket somehow. But I was also writing and I was working on this thing when I was 16 and 17 and 18 and 19, this Lesson Zero project about this kid wandering throughout LA. And you know, what can I say? That kind of happened first because I was in bands at Bennington, the college I was at, when Lesson Zero was published. Mm. Uh, I didn't know if Lesson Zero was going to be published, and I thought maybe the band I was in was going to somehow move forward, and we moved to Minneapolis and signed with Twin Tone or whatever, and you know, but that didn't happen. It's funny, early on in the book, you talk, there's an, there's an anecdote where you speak about how Lesson Zero has been published, and you are approached by the editor of then Vanity Fair to do a project. And it's quite clear that when you, when you embark on the journalistic assignment, it's, it's not, it doesn't have that much meaning for you, maybe in the way that it might have had for other people. Um, it was a profile of Judd Nelson. How much meaning Fair. could I add to that? Yeah. Why couldn't I fuck with that a bit? It was a profile of Judd Nelson. Okay, but you told the you, journalistic okay. integrity. I don't know that. I mean, I know you and I talked about this earlier. You had some issues that I decided to write a trickster piece for Vanity Fair using Judd Nelson as my subject because Vanity Fair. And I talk about the story in the book. I felt that Tina Brown, who was the then editor of Vanity Fair did not like Judd Nelson, did not like him at all, and had hired me to write a hit piece. That is what I assume. And when I told Judd Nelson that, when I first met him, uh, we decided to do a fake story. We decided to do a story that was for the LA issue of the November 1985 Vanity Fair. And we decided to, we pitched them a story, instead of me profiling uh, Judd, it was like, we know the coolest spots in LA. And we're going to go to them, and Judd and I will be photographed at all of the coolest spots that no one knows about, but only Judd and I and a few other very hip LA people. And we chose, like, the Museum of Modern Art, the, the Museum of Neon Art, this, like, uh, uh, French sandwich dip place down in Alameda, the crappiest bar, uh, the Hilton downtown. And we sort of sold all of these places as the coolest places in LA. Like this crappy fortune teller in Glendale. Oh, everybody sees her. Every starlet has to go see Miss Zenya. And, um, and we did do this, and uh, a lot of those places became popular. A one or two did places. not exist. Suddenly there was a, a Thursday night at the Hilton on the shitty stretch of Wilshire was like, you know, a thing for a minute. I don't know. It was, look, I, I like that prankishness. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's a big problem. It wasn't as if I was being sent out to write about whatever, uh, the AIDS crisis or whatever was going on in 1985. It was a celebrity profile, and you know those are so deadly anyway. Well, true, but... Um, but why not make fun of them? Why not, do, why, why not you have did, some fun? You, did, you definitely had a bit of crack with it. I was never asked for, to write for Vanity Fair again. <laughs> But it did make me think about what you really care about, you know, which 
for all your protestations. Tell me. I think it's the novel. <laughs> I think there's I think at your heart, like, you know, when you read a book like Luna Park, you can see how much emotion has gone into mm -hmm. it and how much work has gone into, you know, whether people agree with it or disagree with it, white and all your books all along, they are very important to you is, is, is how the reader feels reading it because there's so much detail, you feel in such comfortable, you feel in the presence of somebody who wants to explain their worldview to you and do it very comprehensively. So it must matter, it must still matter to you. It does. Uh, but uh, Profile of Judd Nelson doesn't really, is not on the first <laughs> of my things. So, but the books certainly do. I mean, White was, uh, ended up shockingly be, uh, being a, a very literary experience for me. I mean, I was taking these podcast monologues and then I was rearranging them and I was putting them, uh, sometimes I divided them, uh, parts of them are, might be in one section and then parts of them might be another. It was, it was like working with a mosaic and it became a very literary experience and uh, I just couldn't help it. That was how, that's just how I work. And I do care. I mean, that's, you, don't, you know, you don't spend eight years on a project or seven years on a project, as, as I have on books, and not care about the books. There might be other aspects of my life that I'm a little sloppier by, but uh, I, I, I do care about the books. So where do you think we're all headed now? Because, like, we're... Well, we're in a generation that you have been know. quite critical of. Um, um, some, I, no more critical than I was of my generation with American Psycho true. and Less Than yeah, Zero. Yeah, yeah. I go easy on millennials compared to what I put my generation through, okay? okay. So it's like, it, that's not true. I, I look at every generation, I, I look at everything kind of through an ironist's lens, or I, I, I see the world as kind of absurd in general. Um, and certainly people who take me to task for not taking, um, not being more critical of Donald Trump, I would, be, I would be taking, if I was writing this book during the whole birther movement or the Tea Party movement that was going on in the U.S., believe me, that would be taken to task too. Any kind of hysterical thing that is an overreactive uh, response to the norms, really, of the world is, I think, what bothers me. And also, what ties white in thematically, I think, with the fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, will people still be picking up as many novels as they once did? Will libraries still be, you know, I mean, if you can get out your crystal ball and look into the future and you see already how much we're tweeting, we're on Instagram, we're using all these forms, we're incredibly detached from each other, but we're glued to our screens. It's a very curious time. Um, so one of the jobs of the novelist in a way is to sort of com convey, I suppose, that, that sort of emotional terrain, which you have been conveying, if, even if not everybody agrees with you at times, but like to look forward a little bit, to look at the life of, I don't know, that your boyfriend will lead in 10 or 20 years' time when he's no longer in the millennial bracket or, or whatever, he's in a new generation for yep. himself. Like, what do you think it's going to be like? Like, will, be uh, as, will we be as invested in culture? I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, one thing that I learned this week is I, look, I gave this interview to the Sunday Times, and for about 30 seconds in a two-hour interview, I said, are millennials even reading anymore? I don't know any millennials who read. That's what I said. It became the headline <laughs> of the piece. I don't know why, and it became a massive pull quote from the piece. And it triggered, uh, again, an ocean of millennials to react on Twitter. And they didn't even read the article because no one wanted to go on the paywall. So no one read the article. <laughs> they just saw the headline and they flipped out. Um, 
look, books are selling. People are reading books. I read books all the time. I love novels. I've got 40 stacked up on my nightstand at any given moment. But I just don't, that conversation doesn't seem to be happening in the way that I guess I want it to happen. And I do know millennials. I know my boyfriend and I know a lot of his friends. And just on social media, um, my social media millennial friends, I don't know. I, I don't see that passion for the novel in a way that uh, I used to. I think that seems to have drifted off somehow. doesn't mean people aren't reading by any means. But I also was looking at the novels that millennials are reading because I decided, I looked, I went online and I said, okay, so no, millennials are reading a lot of novels, great. And then, you know, I saw what they were reading and it's a lot of young adult novels, it's a lot of self-help stuff. I think I was talking about what's good. They should be reading self-help stuff. I'm totally fine with that. Um, but I, I admit, you know what? Look, it's, it, it's part of the empire, the idea of the serious literary novel that connects a wide group of people together and everyone's talking about that book. I don't think that's happened in a very long time and I'm looking for that experience and I'm looking for that conversation. Okay, well, we are going to open it out to the audience uh, in just a minute, so we might bring up the house lights, actually. Um, but just actually one final question before we turn to the audience. Do you think you're still going to be a novelist when you hit, like, say, 70? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a novelist at 70. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I know lackluster answer for the last question, but I I'm not sure. I would I'll hope come, so. I'll come back to you. I would hope so. Okay, so we have something. some roving mics. There's someone over here. Did someone oh, they've got, they've got the mics. You've got to get, get, get yeah, the mics. Yeah, and if we can just try to make sure it's a question, if possible. Okay, a lot of hands. So we've got, yeah, person here. Is it? Yeah. Hi, uh, thank you very much for that discussion. Uh, I have a question concerning you, but also your thoughts on a French author which is uh, Frédéric Begbédé, and who is described in France as the equivalent of Red Easton Ellis. And I was wondering if you read what he wrote, and if you did, what did you think of it? I thought Michelle Welbeck was the French Brady Sinellis. I would rather have Michelle Welbeck be the French uh, uh, Brady Sinellis than Frederick, who I know, and I like Frederick. And I've read some of Frederick's work, but I, I'd much rather be the Michelle Welbeck, <laughs> whose work I really do. I think Michelle Welbeck is an amazing one of the most amazing European novelists and is uh, so vital to the conversation right now. He's a novelist great. that I wish we had in the U.S. Mm. and that we don't have. It doesn't, uh, well, you're here in Ireland, but I mean, in the U.S., I wish we had a novelist like him who was willing to tackle uh, conf uh, controversial themes within a novel, within fiction. I like that. All right. Uh, anyone else? Sorry. Is, um, oh, uh, so, up there at the top. Hi, how are you? Um, thanks for the conversation. Uh, one of my favorite works is Lunar Park, and what was fascinating about Lunar Park for me was the exorcism of the ghost of Patrick Bateman. And you've talked before about how your father influenced Patrick and then how yourself influenced Patrick. I was just wondering, with your history of substance abuse and use, was Lunar Park a sufficient exorcism of some of the negative aspects of your behavior, of the aspects of Patrick Bateman and substance abuse, and are you happier now from having completed Lunar Park? Well, I kept using drugs five years after Lunar Park, so it, <laughs> it didn't really get rid of that. 
<laughs> I want to be totally honest. Um, yes, the character becomes sober at the end of the book, but I didn't become sober at the end of the book. Um, in fact, it got ramped up a little bit during those following years, and then I then I stopped at a certain point. But you know, no, what Lunar Park? You know, people love people who don't like American Psycho love to look at Lunar Park as an apology for American Psycho. I just thought it was an interesting plot device uh, that I wanted to use to revisit American Psycho and to revisit my complicated relationship with Patrick Bateman, which is a big part of White. I write about it a lot in White. I write about how. I created this character that I really didn't think anyone was going to grasp. I thought American Psycho was such an experimental novel, filled with pages upon pages of descriptions of food and clothing, and this kind of and these endless conversations that were going nowhere. I loved writing it; it was fun to write, but I didn't think that was going to connect with a commercial audience. You know, I I actually thought Glamorama was the one that was going to connect. That didn't happen. So, um, but what Lunar Park was really about was exercising my feelings about my father, which had always been pretty negative. I still kind of stumbled, stumbled over them every now and then. And writing that book was freeing myself from him and forgiving him. I know that sounds so dumb and treacly, but it's true. It was writing that book. I finally understood him, and I finally understood how troubled he was and how that led to him being a very complicated father and then ultimately forgiving him. And that's, that's what Lunar Park means to me. Okay. Uh, another questioner on this side. Uh, hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks for the talk, Brett. Uh, I love the podcast. The right um, my question is, um, you mentioned before the rules of attraction is the one adaptation that comes closest to the tone of your novels. And I was wondering, are there any directors today that would be able to capture that tone or would they be hesitant because of the, as you say, the apathy of the characters in your novels? Well, also, just the behavior of the characters I don't think would be acceptable today in mainstream cinema. I don't think you could have that opening with the girl getting like date-raped with the two guys in that, in that dorm room. Um, uh, and certainly, there's a lot of aspects to that movie that are pretty hardcore that in 2002 parlance are totally fine, but in today's world probably wouldn't, wouldn't be filmed. Um, are there any directors today that I feel could... I don't know. I, honestly, I didn't even know if Roger Avery, who directed and, and adapted Rules of Attraction, was the right person until I saw the movie and I realized he was. Um, I didn't think Mary Harron was necessarily the right person. I actually thought David Cronenberg might have been the right person, even though when David Cronenberg told me... And I wrote a script for David Cronenberg. And when David Cronenberg explained to me what I had to do with the script, and then I realized that maybe he didn't know because he told me um, no scenes in restaurants or clubs because they're too complicated to light and they're always static. <laughs> they're always static. You're at a table and I hate it. So cut out all the restaurant and club scenes. Um, I also, I really don't want this to be a violent movie. So I don't want to shoot any of the violence. So really no violence, no club. And, uh, and so I ignored him and I wrote uh, a script that was actually very much similar to what Mary Heron ended up writing, but, um, and I realized that David Cronenberg wasn't the right one. So I don't know who's, who's, who now for what's left of my work to adapt. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I really like Paul Thomas Anderson a lot, and I um, and really not, I don't know. I like Luca Guadino, who did Call Me By Your Name. Okay, we might go to another question. Hi. 
Javier, uh, what's the best piece of advice you ever got about screenwriting? I'm thinking in terms of things like nothing is as it appears. What's that again? I haven't said that one more time. What's the best piece of advice you ever got about screenwriting? Along the lines of nothing is as it appears. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Make your own movies. So the idea of the screenwriter happens, began in the 20s. And there was a ton of money to be made. And so this notion of the screenwriter as this high-paid professional within the cog of, of Hollywood uh, was this thing for about 70 years, 80 years. The whole thing is over now. There is no high-paid screenwriter. There's about 20 people working at studios who are writing the Marvel movies and the Pixar movies. But, you know, a lot of the movies that win Academy Awards for screenplay, a lot of those movies were written on spec. Those writers weren't paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to write those scripts. Um, so the notion of the screenwriter and, you know, the high-paid alcoholic dude who's, like, trying to finish the second draft for the studio is over. That's it's not completely just about over. money, right? What? It's not just about money. Uh, well, I think it was, because I knew a lot of screenwriters in the 80s and 90s who made a lot of money writing screenplays for studios where those scripts never got made. Adult dramas, crime, the studios aren't making any of those movies anymore. And they've all lost their jobs. I mean, I know uh, some of the highest paid screenwriters I know, one is selling real estate in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> Another one opened up a diner in Ojai. Um, that whole thing has completely dried up. So that's, that's not, so there's advice for screenwriting. I don't have any. I think make a movie. If you want to, don't write the script that you want to direct and make that. And probably you'll have to do it on your iPhone, but that's where we are. All right, another question here just at the top. Gentlemen. Um, you spoke earlier about uh, calculated political apathy uh, and being in the majority of Americans who do not vote. Yep. Um, but I wonder, do you think that for the majority of Americans, not voting is a calculated apathy? No, and no, it's not. Well, no. in that case, do you think... I mean, it, it, it sort of is calculated... Is it apathy or is it calculated apathy? It is an apathy of sorts, and it is... I know a lot of people... No one wants to cover it. It's just say, I don't want to vote. I don't want to vote for the candidate. Yeah. And that is not really covered or talked about enough. And I think that that is a huge conversation to have, and no one really is willing to handle that reality. It's just like, oh my God, half the country decided not to vote this election. Uh, I, I think some of it, some of those people, very few is calculated apathy, and then the rest is just kind of an apathy, and the rest is just kind of a disgust with the system. Well, I would ask you then, in, in a post-Gen X generation, do you think that potentially to change the status quo, a proactive millennial uh, reaction might be what's called for? Completely, and they are. They are committed in a way that my generation wasn't. I see it every day in my household. I mean, I think it's nuts most of the time, but there is a real, uh, a real fervor to Todd's belief in politics and that they can change the world. Okay, and another question in the middle. Hi, everyone's questions are really good and intense, and this is gonna seem a bit vacuous, but if, one of my favorite things about you kind of going into new media and podcasts and uh, social media is your reviews and your kind of hot takes on pop culture and literature and movies. If you were giving your harshest review of one of your novels, what would it be? Uh, 
Um, the first four, I have a lot of problems with now. I can't read them. I have a hard time opening them up and looking at them. I want to edit them, and I want to rewrite them. Uh, Lunar Park, I don't really have that much of a problem with. And the book that I disliked the most for the longest time was Imperial Bedrooms. And that's the last time I was here in Ireland, I was promoting that book, and I didn't like it. And it's very hard to go on a worldwide book tour promoting a book you don't like. <laughs> I guarantee you, it's not fun. But I do like Imperial Bedrooms a lot right now. And for some reason, it's the purest distillation of my voice. And it is so... The words are so screwed in, it's, I don't know, it's almost like this weird kind of noir poetry that I wasn't realizing that I was doing at the time. Now, a lot of people don't like the book, but I like the book a lot, and I find it by far the most, uh, the most accessible of my books to myself right now. I have a hard time with American Psycho. I start skipping through it and I go, damn, I wish I'd done that differently. Less than zero, a hard number for me. I, uh, Rules of Attraction, maybe The Informer's a little less because of short stories. There's a lot in Glamorama I like, but it's just not connected in a way. There's paragraphs that I love, and yet I'm just this super severe editor, and I, um, I'm very self-critical. And another questioner there in the middle also. Hi, Brett. How are you getting on? Hello. Um, <laughs> this, this might sound a little pretentious, but um, I'm a big fan of your early stuff. And uh, I was just wondering, has there been any movement on Quentin Tarantino making, uh, remaking Less Than Zero? And if not, can you make it happen for us? <laughs> well, you know, I... It was, no, it was just, it was, <laughs> it was just yesterday, um, I got this message, um, I'm only playing that because I got the call yesterday and I haven't returned the call yet. Um, and I wonder what it's about. I wonder what Quentin wants. Quentin, I had talked to him a couple of times in passing. He had mentioned that he had really felt that the Less Than Zero movie adaptation had majorly missed the boat. And he really liked that book and he would have loved to have given it a shot and done it, adapted it correctly. Um, Nothing ever came through with that. He never wrote a script, not that I know of, and it hasn't happened. Less than zero ever happening again in another medium is dead. Because Hulu earlier, uh, actually last year, I, we signed a deal to make a mini-series of Less Than Zero, and they shot a pilot. And with the, the age-appropriate people, everyone in it was 18 and 19, was set in 1983, they were shooting the book. Uh, 10 episodes, of Less Than Zero, the miniseries, it turned out that every 20 pages of the book turned into about like a 55-minute episode. Uh, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. And they believed in it so much that they reshot it using other actors and another director. 
it was worse. Um, so that's gone. That's not going to happen. And I think because of the rights situation at 20th Century Fox, it's un very unusual that that will ever occur. Okay, I'm conscious of the time, so we'll just try and take... Are you okay to do a couple more questions? Sure. Uh, all right, so on the, on the side. Hi, I'm a 32-year-old millennial. Um, I, uh, you're a fan of my what? <laughs> I'm a 32-year-old millennial. Oh, you're a 32-year-old millennial. Yeah. You're a 32-year-old... Oh, there you are, on a white t-shirt, 32-year-old yeah. millennial. Yeah, very okay. miserable. Uh, I, uh, I assume, nobody did today, but I assume you often or sometimes get asked, oh, where's Clay today, where's Patrick today, blah, blah, blah. Uh, where are their favorite characters? Mike, I assume you, you, in a way you answered that in Imperial Bedrooms. But my question would more be, would Patrick Bateman be, could he exist in today's society, if you will, post-Occupy and post-Me Too? And would Sean Bateman exist in a Tinder, uh, today in the age of Tinder? And would, even more than that, would it be of any interest to you to imagine that? Would that be kind of dead in the water or annoying the way millennials can be? I have a, no, uh, I have a very interesting answer to that. There is a chapter exactly about that in white. It addresses everything you just asked. So read the book. <laughs> All right, we might. That is cute. <laughs> Todd's got competition. Um... It looks like Todd. <laughs> we might take one more question and leave it there. Uh, so, sorry, this here, gentleman here. Thanks very much. It's interesting when you were talking about the death of the novel in the sort of, sort of pop culture um, speaking, that's something that the likes of Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro have been talking about, and one of their theories is uh, what they call sort of post-Marxist critical theory, which deconstructs an awful lot of the sacred texts held in Western society so that it really means nothing nowadays. Yeah. Is that something that you can maybe see with parts of um, the way the novel has gone? Uh, not really. I don't take it as seriously as Jordan Peterson, and I guess I didn't even know that Ben Shapiro, I don't even know people know who Ben Shapiro is over here, um, uh, looked at the novel that way. I look at the novel purely as enjoyment. I look at it as pleasure. And I, I've always resisted academic interpretations of novels. I've always resisted critical theory. I love the pleasure of the novel itself. And if that means that I'm just reading like Middlemarch on my own or, or The House of Mirth or whatever, I, that's what I respond to. And I really don't do too much of a deep dive into critical theory. All right. Did I just say that? It's uh, true, it's true, <laughs> a pleasure, I want pleasure. All right, well I think on that note, it is 20 past eight, so uh, we're gonna have to say thank you so much to Brett Easton The new book is called White. Okay. Um, and thank you also. Thank you also for being a, a fantastic audience. There's a lot more events coming as part of the festival, so as Martin was saying earlier, do check them out. And, uh, and I will be signing books and whatever you have, uh, please bring them and uh, pictures are acceptable And are you too. going out in the town tonight now? What? Are you uh, going out in the town? Uh, no, I'm not. Just I'm in case they books. want to know. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm going to bed and taking the ambient and going to Manchester tomorrow. <laughs> so good night, Thank guys. You.